Hi, I'm Ian, co-founder of Dig Insights and president of Dig's innovation insights platform, Upside. Welcome to Dig In. Dig In is the place to stay up to date on what's happening in the world of innovation, research, and technology, to find inspiration from today's business and innovation leaders, and to properly dig into hot topics that matter for consumer brands right now. And when applicable, we'll bring our own research to that conversation. Welcome to the Dig In uh, podcast. Today, we're talking to Rachel Toledano. She's VP of Clinical Services at Inkpot. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rachel. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So can you tell uh, everybody a little bit about what Inkblot is and, uh, and how long it's been around? Sure. So Inkblot is a uh, company that specializes in uh, telemental health. And um, it was created in 2015 as a startup by um, two co-founders, one of which was a family physician. And uh, their main mission was to create accessible and affordable uh, mental health services for the public. Uh, they developed a very, um, very, very cool AI uh, matching algorithm so that when people filled out a questionnaire online, they would be able to access uh, a series of, you know, clinicians, five, six, eight, depending on the issues that they had, clinicians that would really match their, their needs. Um, and it's all very easy because it's online. They could schedule and book their own appointments and, and read about the clinicians, try it out. So they get a, a free initial consultation to see if it's a good fit. And they can do that as many times as they need until they find you know, the right therapist for them. Perfect. Yeah, I actually was just going to jump in there. I was just going to say, uh, I've used it. I did get matched with a clinician. It was fantastic. It was a really yeah. good match. And so I yeah. thought it was a very cool process. Oh yeah, it's a it's a very seamless and easy, user friendly process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you talk a little bit about your role specifically at Inkblot? Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been a psychologist for twenty years, um, and I've worked a lot in um, different areas related to employee health. Um, you know, disability management, substance use, mental health issues. Um, and uh, my role at Inkblot is to oversee all of the clinical services, develop new programs, you know, train our clinicians, um, and make sure that the services are to the best standards that we can, we can have. Perfect. So you said, you mentioned briefly about some of the impact that, that the pandemic has had on your business. Can you expand a little bit? How is, how is COVID-19, how has it impacted Inkblot's, uh, you know, evolution? Well, as you know, I mean, we've, we were thrust into a whole new reality uh, in March uh, 2020. Um, I think all of us were hearing about the virus um, kind of a little bit as a, you know, another flu. Um, and I, I don't think any of us really expected to be shut down the way the world was. Um, the impact was tremendous on many, many people of different age groups, all age groups were impacted. Um, I, I think at first in a very practical way, um, and then the mental health aspect and component really kicked in very quickly, and we saw demands shoot up, you know. Um, and so Inkblot really was, you know, at the forefront of of 
allowing access to that much needed mental health support. Um, and it continues to be because it's ongoing, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is kind of, I think even you use this phrase, but it's, it is kind of like the second pandemic. It's the mental health impacts of, of not just the, not just the disease, but also of the lockdowns, I think, uh, that we put society through and the impacts uh, associated with that. In, in fact, we've run, you know, we've shared some of the data with you. We've run a number of studies uh, and we've asked people a, a series of questions around the impact uh, of COVID-19 on their mental health. And, and one of the questions we asked was we said, we asked them to agree with the statement, do you feel more depressed lately? And we'd actually asked that same question back in May, 2020. Back in May, 2020, 41% of people said that they, they were feeling more depressed lately. And maybe surprisingly, and may, but maybe not to you, when we just asked that question, it was two days ago now, uh, we had a full 50% of people now, now reporting that they were feeling more depressed. Why do you think, given that we have the vaccines now, Mm -hmm. Why do you think more people would maybe be feeling depressed now than, than they did, you know, a year ago? That's a great question. So, yeah, you're right. I'm not surprised that the that the stats have increased uh, within the past year. Um, it's a compounding effect. You know, I think in May 2020, we had gone through a couple of months of of the, uh, you know, of the, not, not just the, the, the um, confinements and the restrictions related to COVID, but the losses, and now it's a year later, and we've had that many more losses, that many more restrictions. And we don't, although there's the vaccine, we still don't feel secure that things are getting better. You know, I mean, if you just watch the news in the last couple of days, the new Delta virus, the new Lambda virus, which I heard about just this morning, um, like everything is up in the air. We don't really know for sure is the vaccine effective with the new variants? Are there going to be other new variants? Are they shutting down again soon? We, we, you know, everything is up in the air and we're, we're living with that every single day. We can't plan ahead. We, we you know, so the restrictions are still there in, in a right. sense, even though things are starting to open up, we're starting to talk about returning to the office in September, you know, but we're still in the maybes, all right. the uncertainty and the worry. And, you know, there, there, there's a, um, there's a, uh, a theory in psychology that was developed by uh, a, 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 a psychologist that I worked with in, uh, at Concordia University in Montreal. And he developed a theory around intolerance for uncertainty. Um, and uncertainty leads to worry and worry leads to anxiety. And that is really what we're living in right now. And when you live with anxiety and worry all the time, eventually what's secondary to that clinically is depressive symptoms because your quality of life is significantly diminished by, the, by living with anxiety all the time, being on guard all the time, right? Right. Yeah, and we, and, and Again, back to just some stats there, we'd asked, we'd asked a, a series of questions where we asked them to agree, in this case, just by swiping right, but agree with a series of statements. And one of the, one of the statements we used was, the, pandem the pandemic has shaken my confidence in the stability of my life. And a full half people, 52% of people, agreed with that statement. I know I feel that way. I, and yep, I took the survey myself and I said <laughs> yes, you know. 
look, how could it not? How could it not? We lived in a world where we, you know, we had our little routine, we knew how things worked. And from one day to the next, for a full year and a half, and we're not out of it, that's gone. Our whole schema of our security in the world has been shattered. You know, I, I always talk about, I, I, I talk about 9-11 as being one of those events that was emotionally traumatic for the world where, oh my God, how can something like this happen where 3000 people die in one swoop and it's unpredictable. It can happen anytime. This is exactly the same. Of course, it's not perpetrated by humans. It's perpetrated by nature and viruses. But the fact of the matter is that we're now at 4 million people who died in the world. And the government's jobs are to try and protect us, right? But we, we've lost faith in so many things, faith in the government, faith in the doctors, faith in the, the scientists, faith in the world and how it works. And we have no sense of security. That's been shattered, literally. So we have to live with that every day, with that new lens, you know? How do you think, and this doesn't really relate to our study specifically, but mm. how do you think the impact of that lack of stability has impacted this, this seemingly, and at least in my opinion, I don't have the stats to prove this, but increase in this, in this sort of conspiracy theory percentage of the population. Like there seems to be this growing percentage of the population that distrusts everything and everybody. And, and that in itself is sort of, sort of creating um, this vaccine hesitancy because people believe, and even in our study, we saw that people believed it was a conspiracy, like a startlingly high percentage, I would say. Is it chicken and the egg? Is it, is it that the, the stability was shattered, which created this, this feeling of, um, uh, of distrust because I no longer know what I can believe, or was it was it already there? Was it the fact that they didn't trust and they believed in conspiracies that led to a, a even a lower feeling of stability, or does it depend on the person? <laughs> I think it, it, there's there's a few factors here that 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 influence um, you know what we're seeing in terms of conspiracy theories. One is I think that there are there's always been people who believed in some conspiracy theories. Um, Psychology Today actually did a super interesting article about this. Um, and they said that, you know, it's mostly very intelligent people who believe in conspiracy theories, believe it or not. Um, and they were, ex it, you know, it explained how as human beings, we need to explain things away. When we, when there's no uh, like valid explanation, which there isn't. How could this happen? You know, how could 4 million people die in a year and a half? How could our whole security be shattered? How could be, we be in 2021 and, and medicine can't fix this quickly? You know, how could this be? And so when we have no explanation and there's no like, clear cut formula to explain things away, we create one. Because it gives us an illusion of security to say, I have an explanation for this. The, the government or you know whoever has a reason to do this and that 
explains the craziness that we're living in. Right. So we need, you know, it, it's like when there's a, a, um, a crime, uh, let's say a murder, and we can't find, you know, we can't find the, the, uh, the, the, the assassin, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to look. And even if we accuse someone that is not the right person, we need to find someone to accuse. And until then, we're not okay in our head. So we need kind of to close the loop. Leaving things hanging with no real explanation is not acceptable to the human brain. So I see. So conspiracy theories, right? Right. So the, so the need to find someone to blame is partly what fuels this, you know, the conspiracy theory, and then it's a reinforcing negative loop about yeah. it's not and really, I can't trust that I don't feel safe. And it reinforces the same feeling and the same suspicion. Exactly. It's very dangerous, obviously. <laughs> it's very dangerous. And now with social media and the need for the news channels to fuel, you know, fuel uh, a, a story to be very interesting. You know, I saw this morning actually a post by a doctor in Montreal who who's been posting all along, giving people information about what was going on with COVID. And this morning he said, I don't understand why they're talking about the Lambda variant. What's the purpose other than scaring people? So obviously we wanna know what's going on. You know, we, we wanna be informed. We're in a, an era and a generation of people who want to know what's going on and want information. But there's some information that only is serves to fuel fear and it's all over the place. We're exposed to it all day long through social media, through the news channels, through you know magazines, and and we live in an era where we're bombarded with 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 information that creates anxiety and fear. Right. So, you know, so so I think that the media, the the all the the media outlets are also you know responsible to a certain degree for for fueling the conspiracy theories. You know. Yeah, I think that's. Actually, this is a really important question related back to um, if we start to see this decoupling of between hospitalization and death and infection rates, then are we, what's, do we continue to fuel unnecessary fear and doubt by reporting just infection rates and if we are how do we stop it like how do we how do we tell a, a scared populace stop worried about stop worrying about what percentage of people um mm -hmm. test positive because they're not going to end up in the hospital we don't do this with the common cold or we don't do this with the flu and i know that currently um mortality rates are still higher obviously for COVID 19 but not necessarily among those who are vaccinated and, and, you know, the latest data says that the, uh, the efficacy rates among vaccinated still protects significantly against hospitalization and mortality. So, who, who I mean, I, A, I think the politicians need to be talking to, to, to psychologists much more than they are. They only talk to uh, epidemiologists. They don't talk to psychologists. Mm -hmm. And two, if you, if you could give advice to um, the government, like how would, how would you counsel them on how we need to transition out of this blatant fear? Like your point about Delta. I mean, 
Delta is terrifying on one level, but on another level, the data out of Israel, the data, even the data out of the UK is showing that if you're double vaccinated, the probability of hospitalization and death is, is incredibly low. Yeah. And it's not worth worrying about how many people just get it, right? Well, especially after a year and a half of, of being anxious. And right. And the reality, which we don't want to, we don't want to minimize of so many people actually dying. So mm -hmm. people are, are already very hypervigilant. They're to a certain degree, I, you know, I don't want to say traumatized. Some might be traumatized, but we're, we're, we're um, in a state of non-trust, right? In, in, mm -hmm. in everything. You're asking me a question that is impossible to answer because it's Sorry. about control. It's about control, yeah. right? right? Who controls information? Because you know, in therapy, when we when we help people who have anxiety, our main strategy is information, knowledge, data, facts. That's what we we depend on to change people's perspective to reduce anxiety and fear. As long as we can't control information, and we can't, in, in this era, we can't control information because it's coming from everywhere. We can't control whether the right information is being presented, the true information, and how it's being presented. It's true that there is a Delta and a Lambda variant, and, but how do you present that? And exactly as you said, do you present it as, oh, there's a Lambda, there's a new Lambda variant now, with 11 cases in Canada today? Or do you present it as, yes, there is a Lambda variant, but people are be not being hospitalized because of it. It's not causing more death. So it's all about the way you present information. And as long as you can't control that, then you can't control how much fear you're creating in people. You know? So I think the vaccines, and, and then there's all the people who are anti-vaccines, there's people who are anti-masks, there's people who are, you know, worried for their freedom as human beings, that their freedoms are being limited by governments, the, the vaccine passports, all of that right now is what's at the forefront and which is fueling, continuing to fuel anxiety, you know, because people are not rationally now they're thinking with their emotional part of the brain not the rational part of the brain the critical part the critical thinking part has been paused by anxiety like to explain it the the limbic system which contains our emotional part of our brain is in terms of evolution much much more ancient than the 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 neocortex which came way later in terms of evolution a good example it you know, related back to this, in our in the study that we ran with you, um, we saw that among those people who were unvaccinated, a full 41% of them said that uh, they felt like they'd been negatively judged they for are. not getting vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, yeah. What's your question? <laughs> yeah, sorry. So, I, I mean, I know somebody, I'm not going to name him in this podcast, that would be unfair. Highly intelligent, to your point, right? a highly intelligent individual has refused to get vaccinated. It, it, it definitely has created a conflict for me mm. because I feel that it's irrational, it's upsetting that he's refusing to. I feel like it's his duty 
as a, as a citizen to protect his fellow citizens. Mm. So how, how, how do you recommend that somebody in that situation, pretend it's your, your, your parents or your sibling, or how do, you, how do they deal with the fact that somebody that they care about, somebody that presumably they may even respect, has made the decision that is so counter to them and so pivotal right now in, you know, in, in the future of, of our society, how do you bridge that? How do you get past that? This is a super interesting question and, and actually a really good question for the time that we're in it, it, right now. I also know someone who is anti-vaccine and will not get the vaccines. Um, you know, I think there's many things here. One is we're very judgmental as human beings. Um, you know, we see one aspect, but we don't see the whole puzzle all the time. Some people have reasons why they don't want the vaccines. They might be health reasons. They might be a history of allergic reactions to, vac to vaccines or to medications that they suffered from, and they're scared to take the vaccine. Some of them, it's just, it's my human right to say no to a treatment, right? Or to a, a, a vaccine. So on the one hand, I would say, if you're pro-vaccine, because you're looking more at the impact on the world and society as a whole, rather than a, from an individual perspective, you have to remember that each person has their own life experiences that may lead them to that decision and to try not to judge. And you have to remember that the only person, the, the, the people who are not protected are themselves. Because if you got vaccinated, you're, you're protected. You're the one who's not gonna have these severe symptoms leading you to a hospitalization or death, right? What we want is to eradicate the, the virus. That's what we're thinking of as people who are getting the vaccine. But at the same time, all this information, we talked about the conspiracy theories, where I spoke to some mothers who are thinking about their daughters, there are issues with fertility that are being brought, brought up. Like, is this gonna impact my daughter's fertility later? So I don't wanna vaccinate my 16 year old daughter. I don't know what's gonna happen. There's so many uncertainties that we can't be surprised that some people are afraid of the vaccine and don't want the vaccine, even highly intelligent people, because they're thinking of aspects that we're not. And don't forget that there are very significant individual differences um, with regards to uh, averse, like being averse to risk, right? Some people are, it's easy to take a risk. You know, I'll try it and I mean, like, we'll see what happens. That's their life motto. Some people, they need reassurance. They need stats. They need all kinds of things before they're going to take a risk, right? So because we're living in a world with, you know, as many, as many different perspectives and brains as there are people on the planet, we can't expect everybody to be on the same page. Part of the catch-22 we land in, though, unfortunately, is we asked even among those people who were vaccinated, a full quarter of them, was well, 24%, said that even though they've been vaccinated, they're still worried about their safety as a result of COVID and, and maybe a, a small portion of those may be valid. But we have these two very conflicting points of view in this case where we have, you know, almost a quarter of the population who's been vaccinated saying, uh, 
I mean, of, of the of the quarter that of those that have been vaccinated, a quarter of them still feel unsafe. Mm -hmm. And then we have this other population um, among those who have not yet been vaccinated. Thirty-two percent are unsure about getting vaccinated. Many are flat out refusing it. Who who don't want to get vaccinated? And it's it's sort of created this this very um, difficult tension between those people who, even if they're vaccinated, feel that they're not safe unless everyone's vaccinated, and these people who just don't want to be vaccinated. But it sounds like we all just need counseling. <laughs> probably. <laughs> to, to, yeah, probably. And to actually to that point, though, we said, um, we had asked actually in, in, the, in, the, in, in our study, we'd asked, have you or anyone in your household spoken to a psychologist? Only 14% only of people said yes, that they had. Yeah. But among those people who had, who had spoken to somebody, 29% um, said it helped a lot and 49% said it, it had somewhat helped. So it really does make a difference. And I think, I think that's really an interesting insight is that almost nobody who sought, only 3% of people who sought a psychologist's help felt that it didn't help them. Uh, and, and another 18 felt that they still had hope that it would help them, but it's not yet helped them. I mean, do you think that in a time like this, maybe we all kind of need some counseling? Listen, uh, I'm going to talk about something positive for a change. Yeah. <laughs> Is the fact that human beings are resilient. Also, mm -hmm. we have our inner resources. Um, and we also some of us have more uh, resources and support than others. So, you know, I may not have sought the help of a therapist, but I may, may have sought the help of family. I may have had good friends that were around and we provided support for each other. And we, we looked to our internal and ex external resources that already exist and got through okay. Okay, it doesn't mean we were perfect, but we were okay. We didn't feel a need to go see a therapist. Of those who went to see a therapist, first of all, I think there was a lack of access to, to for certain people. I can't tell you how many requests for clients for therapy I get a day to, to this day, whether it's Monday to Friday or Saturday or Sunday. Every day I get four or five requests a day. That's just me individually, right? Um, so that's to show that there's a lack of access. I, can't, I, can't, I, I have, for a period, I didn't even know where to refer them to any, anymore because when I would send them to other therapists that I you know, collaborate with, they had no more space. So one was the problem of access, which is why Inkblot was such an asset, right? During the pandemic, because we have hundreds of therapists and you can access their calendars. And basically, you know, there is one of them somewhere that's available, right? The other thing is accessibility and affordability, right? The affordability, not everybody can pay private practice um, rates. When it was public, there were wait lists. So hence, again, Inkblot was really good at, you know what? we're less than half the going rate of private practice psychologists. So that helps. But not everybody knows about Inkblot or you know, other, uh, other providers that, that provide accessibility and affordability. So a lot of people ended up having nowhere to go. 
And to, to answer the question about the 3% who said it didn't help them, you have to understand that success in therapy involves two main components. This was shown through research. There's two important factors for, for therapeutic su success. One is finding the right therapist for you. So some people may have had sessions with a therapist they didn't jive with and they felt like, ugh, and then they didn't try again, right? And then there's the, your internal motivation to get better and to do the work to get better. It's not enough to show up at therapy. Therapy happens 50 minutes once a week, usually. But if between each session, you're not helping yourself, you're not doing the homework, you're not applying the skills and the tools, you're not, you're not engaging in getting better, you're not going to get better. It's not a magic potion, right? So we always have an CBT, which is, you know, the gold standard for treating anxiety and depression. We have a stat that shows that 85% of people who do CBT therapy get better and get better for a long time. What's happening with the 15%? They either didn't have a good therapeutic alliance or they weren't motivated to do the work. So there's always going to be some people that say, eh, it wasn't so helpful. Oh, for sure. I mean, if only 3% self-reported say, no, it hasn't helped. 97% uh, efficacy of counseling obviously goes quite well. And, I, and, I, and as I said, I did try plot and I did find it incredibly easy to find a session in a time that I needed because it had a Calendly type interface where I could search the calendar and it was affordable. And in our case, we actually added it to our benefits for all of our employees. So now everybody at DIG actually has access to Inkblot and we found it to be incredibly useful. So I think you definitely have filled a gap in a need at a particularly you know, important time where people really do need it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, where, I mean, the fact that you can get access to a session sometimes today, if yeah. I go online, I might see a therapist who can see me tonight at 6 PM or within the next 24 to 48 business hours, you know, that, that is unheard of when you're calling private practice therapists or trying to access therapy through, forget the public system, you know, they're overwhelmed. The public system is actually paying private practice therapists, they're hiring the services to, to, to uh, be able to meet the demand, you know? I mean, that's unheard of, it's unheard of. I've never seen anything like it, it's crazy. So if you don't mind, just with the few minutes that we have left, yeah. I'd like to just kind of go over some of the key statistics that we saw, some of the trends that we saw, Absolutely. and as, as a psychologist and as a representative inkblot, just kind of get some of your, just your takes on it. Like if, you know, if nothing stands out, that's fine. But if, if you have something that you think adds color to, to the sort of, you know, stark numbers, let me know if there's something that you think is interesting. So uh, the first one is we had done a study just last year, and then we repeated parts of it this year. And we asked the things that people missed most yeah. in their day-to-day -day life. And an interesting thing that we saw happened was that, Last year, uh, thing, the things that they missed most were things like going grocery shopping, mm -hmm. uh, not worrying about touching things. This year, we saw a much higher percentage of people saying they missed a lot more of the more sociable elements. So for instance, in 2020, 
43% of people missed giving hugs. In 2021, 67% of people missed giving hugs. Yeah. In uh, 2020, going to restaurants was not even one of the top four things. In 2021, going to restaurant, going to restaurants was one of the was the number one thing. 70% of people said they missed going to restaurants. Yeah. What, it makes what, perfect sense. Yeah. And what do you think is going on there? Do you know the pyramid of Maslow? So the yes. pyramid of Maslow shows us that we have first primary needs like food, water, shelter, right? Safety for our survival. Then we'll have, you know, love, attention, affection, then blah, 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 self-actualization, etc. So if you look at the stats of 2020, people were concerned with their survival, right? I miss being able to just go get what I need for food. People at some point were like, am I even going to get toilet paper, right? Um, I, I, can I buy eggs? Can I buy uh, bread? Can I, like, are we going to lack the basics for survival? So it's normal that people were, as human beings, that we were first concerned, first and foremost, at the start of the pandemic with those things. As we became more secure that, hey, you know, like when I go to the grocery store, they have everything I need that was set aside that need is filled and we go to the next level of the of the pyramid which is okay but now i miss my friends i miss socializing i want my hugs i want my my social contact we're social beings we need that it's essential for our mental health and for our survival so but it's it's a secondary need so once the first level is fulfilled then now we worry about the second level and that's exactly what the stats have shown. Very cool. Um, okay, so another thing that we looked at uh, in this study that we just finished two days ago, one of the things we were interested in was the, not only the, the mental, mental health impact on the individual, but also on their children. And yeah. so we said, has, you know, has uh, the pandemic affected your, the mental health of your children negatively? And in fact, overall, 62% of parents believe their kids have been negatively impacted by COVID. And only 5% said that it was that it, that it had a positive impact. Um, and when we looked at that by the age of the children that they had in their household, there was a pretty stark difference. So the youngest children, uh, zero to five, for instance, 51%. So half of those were negatively affected, you know, that their parents could tell. By the time we got up into the teens, the 16 to 17-year-olds, 80% of parents were, were saying, yeah, it's really negatively impacted my children. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> Again, sorry. Okay, no, that's fine. Yeah, that's it makes fine. perfect sense. So there's there's a couple of things. One is, yes, there will, there will have been kids who benefited because they might have had more family time, right? More attention. Parents were working from home or not working for a time. Families reunited. I remember myself having a lot more time with my kids and my, my, my family, my immediate family, because we were confined. I was no longer coming home from the office late. I was you know, having supper with my family every night. So some kids benefited. It's more on the social aspect of kids not going to school, school closures, uh, not being able to do their activities, not being able to, uh, to, to do exercise, go outside, play. So if you look at the trend from very young to teens or you know, almost young adults, 
you know, kids who are at home at five, six, eight, 10 years old, they're still sheltered in their family, right? The 14, 15, 16, 18 year olds really suffered. That's an age where you're supposed to be with your peers, going out, having fun, partying, you know, clubbing, like they lost all of that. I mean, I can't even imagine at 17 or 18 having to spend all my time with my family. Like I just wanted to be with my friends and have fun. So yes, they suffered the most, absolutely. And it makes perfect sense. And even my pediatrician, like our, my kid's pediatrician was telling me, like, I cannot believe the, the 14, 15 year olds that are coming in to request anxiolytics and antidepressants because they're, 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 they're the ones who are suffering the most. So I'm not surprised that we saw that. So would, would you recommend, I mean, I would, but I mean, if you're a parent who, who feels that your, your, your children are feeling that way and, and, and um, you know, and you have access, I think counseling is, is definitely a great idea. I, I'm, I'm assuming that you would think you definitely <laughs> you're assuming correctly <laughs> absolutely um and the reason is that as much as you know first of all some some teens don't open up to their parents um they they're they're they may not know how to verbalize what they're feeling they may not even understand what they're feeling um having someone to talk to who knows how to instill hope because we couldn't change the reality of these teens i saw 15 16 year olds in therapy we couldn't change the, the facts that they were in confinement, they couldn't go out, there was nowhere to go, nothing to do. Those were, it was a reality. But what we could do and what we know how to do is instill hope. And that is a key element in helping people not fall into a deeper depression. So, and, 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 and the teens are not always open to listening to their parents. So having a counselor who's, who you have a good therapeutic alliance with, who knows how to talk to teens, who's open to hearing also and validating, not just saying, oh, it's going to be okay. It's not enough, you know, is very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, just to end on uh, sort of a more positive note, uh, you know, in the study, we did see that 80% of people are confident that better times are, are, are ahead. And that was only 40% back a year ago. So yeah. I, I do feel like, you know, we are turning a bit of a tide. At least people feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel and there's, there's something more positive to look forward to. And as you said, that's really important, though, that feel people are beginning to feel that hope. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see that. And I'm hoping that eventually that will, that will relate to some, you know, lowering of those feeling, feeling depressed numbers. Um, any last pieces of recommendation that you give on, on some coping mechanisms, you know, other than, other than counseling, um, you know, we, I asked, we asked our respondents if they had any, if they'd found anything that helped them. Mm -hmm. um, and only, only 25% of people said that they'd actually come up with coping mechanisms and the things that they said were going for walks, yeah. um, hobbies, meditation, uh, spending time with my dog, reading. It was just kind of more like keeping their mind off of things. Um, yeah. Do you have any other, any other last piece of, of advice? It was very limited, the resources that we had access to. Even when we were giving therapy, 
you know, usually when you have people who are depressed, one of the main strategies is called behavioral activation. Get people to get active and do things that they enjoy and that brings them a sense of accomplishment and a sense of fulfillment. And we had like, we, you know, you had to be very creative because we didn't have access to all that stuff, you know? Um, I, think, I think that, of course, self-care, exercising, eating well, having a routine, uh, is very important, but I would say limiting isolation mm -hmm. any which way you can, whether it's sitting two meters apart in a park or doing, you know, FaceTime calls or, or house party calls and, and, and not falling into the, because I'm feeling down, I don't feel like talking to anyone, so I won't. And then you're more and more alone, lonely and isolated. I said lack of hope is a, a big factor in depression. The other one is loss. And then the, the, the third one is loneliness. So if you're bored, if you're feeling lonely and isolated, those are going to really compound the feeling of being down. You know, not everybody's clinically depressed, but even feeling uh -huh. down is fed yeah. by loneliness and isolation. So I would say, one of the main thing is yes, keep doing your meditation, your yoga, your walks, your you know your reading. Find some stimulating, intellectually stimulating activities. Take webinars, like take a course. Use that time for self evolution. You know, to 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 take care of your inner demons through counseling and through self help books, etc. But also make sure you always have plans to connect with others i think that's the most helpful thing for human beings right now you know yeah and what about what about limiting media that that came up a little bit yeah inkblot just did a, a whole i just did a whole um um a segment on uh limiting social media and how social media can become toxic so it could be a great tool to connect with others and stay connected. But you have to also be able to identify and be aware, stay aware and conscious of the content that actually has an aversive effect. So if you see that you are, you know, you liked a certain page and every time you read those posts, you feel bad, unlike it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, yeah. Uh, Limit, yeah. limit the time that you spend also if you feel that it's impacting you I felt it myself you know like um at a point where I was reading and and Facebook and all that stuff has become negative it's more bad news than good news you know of course we want to stay up to date with what's going on but you don't have to stay up to date you know every 10 minutes throughout the day you can say I'm I'm um I'm uh I'm gonna spend 10 minutes time it if you have to or let it go completely. Delete the app if it's not good for you, right? Don't watch the news all day, every day, you know? Yeah. Like in small segments and then close the box. I always talk about a mental box that you can open up when you choose, but you can also close it when you choose. Don't leave the box open all day long if it's not good for you, right? You can compartmentalize things. Okay, I read about this. I saw this. I saw that. This is not good for me. I'm getting rid of it. Um, and when I do it more than 10 minutes, 
it starts not feeling so great anymore, not more than 10 minutes then. But you have to be self-aware of how you're feeling when you're doing things. You can't be on automatic pilot. So for sure, I would say limits. Thank you so much, Rachel. This has been incredibly insightful. Um, If people want to learn more about Inkblot, I guess your website, inkblottherapy.com, we'll put the link in the description. Uh, Anywhere else they should be looking for information about Inkblot or is your website the main source? The the website's a good starting point. If they have questions, we have a client care uh, support chat or phone number that they can call if they have questions and or they need help for matching. Uh, We're happy to assist. Fantastic. We'll put that in the description as well. Thanks so much for your time today. It's been a really engaging conversation. I really appreciate all your insights. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ian. It was super fun. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Dig In. If you want more information about Dig Insights or Upside, please check us out on LinkedIn or at our websites at diginsights.com or upside.com. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or would like to be a guest, please feel free to direct message me through the LinkedIn app.